Well hello there and welcome to Passing the Button Series 3 and this is actually number 35 and the title of it is His Majesty the King and the date is the 27th of March 2010. So my first heading is Presentation of the King. We are continuing our journey into an intentional lifestyle this month by looking at the nature of the King and his kingdom. We can't go any further until we have Jesus in his rightful place in our hearts and in our thinking. Jesus is both our King and our God. God the Father has decreed that Jesus Christ will be King over the whole created realm. He will be the summit of everything that he has created. In all things he will have the preeminence. Jesus is God's appointed King. Colossians 1.18 in the New King James Version says this, And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. That is God's stated purpose, and Jesus is King by God's ordinance. All of history is moving towards the visible revelation of His Majesty, King Jesus, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So having said that, let's commit ourselves to this magnificent King of ours, whilst we delve into His history and into that which is to come. Father, thank you that we are the most secure of all people, that we know who we are, we know where we're going, and we know who reigns and rules over us. Father, I pray that by these words your kingdom may be extended in our hearts and in our lives, that our understanding will be upgraded, we will know who Jesus is in all his majesty and supremacy, we'll begin to get a glimpse of what is to come for us, what we are heirs to, what we are appointed to. So Father, I ask for a spirit of wisdom and revelation to be over all of us, Lord, those who are listening here and those who listen on CD or read the notes. Father, bless us with open eyes, opened hearts and opened understanding. In the name of Jesus, I ask it. Amen. So, that is God's stated purpose. Jesus will have the preeminence. He is king by his ordinance. And all of history is moving toward the visible revelation of his majesty, King Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. When he was born, he came as the king and everything in his life from the moment of his birth testified to his kingship. What I aim to do today is to take you through some of the proofs of Jesus' right to be king, some of the signs of his kingship, his names and his titles. When we come to look at Jesus as Messiah, we'll look at the prophecies concerning his first advent and how he fulfilled every one of them.
you will be familiar already with the twin streams of prophecy in the Old Testament regarding Jesus, first as a suffering servant and secondly as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, which relate both to the first and second advent. This is a vast subject and I cannot do real justice to it in such a short time, but what I hope to do is to whet your appetites in order that you will be inspired to look at the subject for yourselves. Most of us are used to referring to Jesus Christ as King, but just exactly what do we mean by that? What criteria would he have had to fulfil in order to be recognised as the long-awaited Messiah and King of the Jews? When he came to the Jews over 2,000 years ago, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were looking at him and testing him to see if he fulfilled these criteria which would verify he was indeed the promised Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. Many had already come in his name claiming to be the Messiah but had been proved to be false. And indeed Jesus himself warns us in the Olivet Discourse that that will be the case again in the end times. Matthew 24.5 in the NIV says this, For many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. There have always been those who have come claiming that they are the Christ but are impostors. It will be no different in the end times with the rise of the Antichrist himself. The Old Testament predicted and looked for the coming of the Anointed One, the King, who would come to bring deliverance and redemption to the nation of Israel. However, contrary to the expectation of the Jews at the time, when he came, he came as the suffering servant, not as deliverer and king deliverer and king to their continued consternation. We see this even after Jesus' ascension to the Father in the beginning of the book of Acts when they ask the question in Acts 1-7 reading from the New King James again, therefore when they had come together they asked him saying, Lord will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I think I said Acts 1-7 there, it's actually Acts 1-6. They had a kingdom fixation. Why? Because they wanted to be out from under the Roman occupation. But Jesus answers them like this in Acts 1.8. This is the message now. You don't get to know the timing. Timing is the Father's business. What they received was the Holy Spirit to enable them to do the job Jesus gave them. Go into all the world and preach the good news. It was not yet time for Jesus to be revealed as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Before that takes place, there's a job to do. So in this unfolding study, we will look at Jesus as Messiah, as King and as man. I'm going to start with his kingship because that's the way we will next see him as our bridegroom and king. Whether we are raptured or die, the end result is the same. We will be with our king forever and he will be both our king and our bridegroom. He has a different relationship with us, the bride, than with the nation of Israel who was his wife. Ponder that one for a moment and uh, no he isn't committing a bigamy. I had to stop you from uh, hanging on a 
the edge of a cliff there. The whole thing is relational. That's why he refers to Israel as his wife and the church as his bride. It's that close, the relationship. It's got nothing to do with the reality of a marriage or uh, anything else. And the way we understand it, that is. So, added to all this, we are being prepared to reign and rule with this supreme ruler of the universe. We are joint heirs with Christ and we shall reign with him. Next month, Lord willing, we will be looking at identity and inheritance. An heir has an inheritance. All of this means we need to develop a heavenly viewpoint. The wedding of the universe is about to take place. The invitations have been sent out and we are the bride and it is time for us to make preparation for our bridegroom. Going back to the beginning then. We did a brief study on Jesus' birth when we looked at the Magi, the kingmakers, literally, from Persia, who arrived in Jerusalem to make him king, putting consternation in the heart of Herod and the Jews. If you want a fuller study, it's Passing the Baton number 20, and its title is It's a Cracker. But we will look briefly at these people, the Magi, as we go on today. So to, so to set the jewel of the birth of Christ into the, its proper place in the centerpiece of history, we need to see what has happened up to the time to the Jews before Jesus came. We need to look a little bit into what had happened. So the background is this. Um, from his calling out from Babylonia, to the covenant of circumcision, God had promised Abraham, the patriarch, a son, a nation and a land. And Genesis 15:7 in the New American Standard says this, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. From Abraham, through whom God had promised a great nation, the Jews had grown to millions of people with God himself as their king. However, they found themselves dissatisfied with this arrangement and asked for a king with skin to rule over them like the nations around them. We pick up the story in the book of the prophet Samuel. 1 Samuel 8, 5 to 9 And here the people are speaking to Samuel. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint us a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they've rejected. They've rejected me as their king. As they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Isn't verse 7 the saddest verse in the Bible? Father says, they've not rejected you, 
they've rejected me. Imagine the pain in the heart of God at this rebellion by his own chosen people. However, God gave them what they wanted, warning them what would happen if they went this way. And sure enough it did. God made Saul king over them which started a lengthy reign during which he pursued David for 39 years to kill him. Subsequently David's son Solomon reigned but God became angry with Solomon and gives him a warning of what's going to happen after he dies. 1 Kings 11, 9-13, New International Version the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's promise. I'm sorry, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you've not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. And in 1 Kings 12, 16-24, NIV, we see the outworking of this prophetic word to Solomon. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, was a young man who did not listen to the wise counsel of the elders, but to the young men. And this was the result. After his death, the kingdom is torn in two, fulfilling the prophetic word to Solomon in 1 Kings 11 with the Lord telling the people not to go up to fight their brothers, for this is my doing. 1 Kings 2, sorry, 1 Kings 12, 16-24 NIV. And it's referring now to Rehoboam not taking the counsel of the elders. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, what share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, O Israel, look after your own house, O David. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. King Rehoboam sent out Adoniram, who was in charge of forced labor. But all Israel stoned him to death. King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. When all the Israelites heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to, to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. Only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. When Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he mustered the whole house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 fighting men, to make war against the house of Israel and to regain the kingdom for Rehoboam, son of Solomon. But this word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, to the whole house of Judah and Benjamin, 
and to the rest of the people. This is what the Lord says. Do not go up to fight against your brothers, the Israelites. Go home, every one of you, for this is my doing. So they obeyed the word of the Lord and went home again, as the Lord had ordered. This tear resulted in civil war between the now divided kingdom. You can read the whole story in the books of Kings and Chronicles as both evil and good kings arise to govern both the northern and the southern kingdom. Time and again God raised up prophets to warn the people, but eventually in the fifth cycle of discipline they were exiled to Babylonia and Persia. And it is from Persia that the believing Magi came to find the promised Messiah, the long-awaited deliverer and king of Israel. But not everyone was happy with God's intervention. Again we pick up the story in Matthew 2 verses 1 to 3 NIV. Headed up for me the visit of the Magi. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Jerusalem was under Roman rule, and Herod had been placed there as king to keep the Jews in subjection to the Romans. He had no entitlement to the throne of Judah. He was a usurper, an illegitimate king. He was not born of the house of David. He was not even Jewish by birth. He was an Edomite, a descendant of Esau, and he hated the Jews with a passion. So Herod and all Jerusalem knew that the kingmakers, the Magi, had arrived and they intended to make someone king, and it wasn't Herod. This knowledge caused Herod to panic. He was old and ill, and his army was away at war and now his throne was under threat. These people, the Magi, did not come on three camels, as is portrayed. They would have come on horseback with about 500 men. They were important, influential people who had the power to enthrone a king. This is why they went straight to the palace to look for Jesus. Is it any wonder, then, that Herod was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him? Not only was Herod troubled, but the political Jews were troubled too. They enjoyed their position in the synagogue, and the honour afforded them by the people. This was why they later continually questioned Jesus about his mission, who he was, they didn't want to lose their power and position in society. All Jerusalem was troubled at the advent of this long-awaited king. But God has a plan to remove the child from Herod's attention. Matthew 2, 13-15 and the flight into Egypt. Now when they had gone, 
Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. So here we see a prophetic word fulfilled, Hosea 11.1, 1, And out of Egypt I called my son. But there were other prophetic words. A ruler will come. And to see this we need to go back to Numbers 24.17 in the New American Standard. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel, and shall crush through the forehead of Moab, and tear down all the sons of Sheth. He will be from the line of David, from the tribe of Judah. Jeremiah 23 verse 5 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. He will be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7 verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5 verse 2 But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He will ride in triumph on a donkey. Zechariah 9 9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will be despised and rejected by those he comes to save. Isaiah 53.3 NIV He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. John 1 verse 11 King James Version says this, He came to his own and his own received him not. And because the Jews rejected their Messiah, Paul tells us at the end of the book of Acts, Acts 28:28, 28, Therefore I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Echoing Samuel's denunciation of them when they wanted a king with skin in 1 Samuel 8:6, Yet again Israel rejects God's rule over them, when their king comes to them personally.
but they will have another chance during the Great Tribulation to make their choice, King Jesus or the Antichrist. The Great Tribulation is the time of Jacob's trouble. It is the time of God's final dealings with the nation of Israel, although the unbelieving nations of the world will also be involved. Primarily, it is a continuation of Israel's history. The 70th week of Daniel Again, if you want more information on this, you need to get the study on Daniel's 70th week. So, back to the script. Jesus, God's last word. The introduction to the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is God's last word. Hebrews 1, 1-4 in the New American Standard Bible. God's final word in his Son. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Paul puts it like this, Colossians 2.9, For in him the whole fullness of the deity, the Godhead, continues to dwell in bodily form, giving complete expression of the divine nature. That was the amplified version. Our God reigns. <clears throat> Excuse me. This study then is about Jesus' kingship. Specifically that it becomes part of our life in order that we should bow the knee to him and that his word should be a continuing light to our feet, that we should understand that our role in the earth is to walk as he walked. 1 John 4.17 Amplified In this union and communion with him, love is brought to completion and attains perfection with us, that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, with assurance and boldness to face him, because as he is, so are we in this world. When we gather together, his word tells us that Jesus is walking in the midst. Revelation 1, 10-18, NIV On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash across his chest. His hair and his head were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. 
His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was shining like the sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive for ever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. This is our God, walking amongst the candlesticks, walking amongst the churches, shining his light into our hearts. As I mention the word theology, you may groan, but it is, simply put, the study of our faith and God's relationship to us and the world he created for his pleasure. So we're going to embark on an in-depth study of Jesus' kingship, how he fulfilled not some but all the prophetic words which were ever spoken about him before his incarnation. Knowledge of our salvation is not enough. It must be backed up with biblical fact, together with faith and experience, in order that we go on to maturity in Christ. To do this, part of what we need is a solid foundation, which is rooted and grounded in the scriptures. We need two feet to walk, theology and experience. We need to be able to explain why we believe what we believe, and live it out with the confident expectation that our future is eternally secure. Visitation is always to put a desire in our hearts to know him. Jesus said, didn't he, in John 17:3, amplified now, and this is eternal life. It means to know to perceive, recognize, become acquainted with and understand you, the only true and real God, and likewise to know him, Jesus, as the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, whom you have sent. The Toronto Blessing was sent to us in order that we might seek after him, not after the manifestations. They were there to draw us to him, that we might know him, that we might develop a hunger after him and choose him above all else. In these days we must have a right view of the Lord Jesus. Our understanding must be increased, expanded, extended and upgraded to encompass all that he is and all that he desires to do in and through us. If we are to bear his likeness, we must know what he's like in his fullness. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and this must become foremost in our thinking as we enter the dark days which are ahead of us. We must be without doubt of his complete sovereignty over all things, and his total omnipotence, power, omniscience, knowledge, and his omnipresence, the fact that he is continuously and simultaneously present 
in all of creation. We're lining up with Jesus, in Jesus and behind Jesus. It's part of our journey that our heart becomes fully cognizant of the incredible life that God the Father has bestowed on us in Christ. We are his inheritance and he is ours. We need an understandable, comprehensible characterization of his total supremacy. Jesus is God's visual aid to thoroughly enlighten humanity. Therefore, the fullness of the splendor of Jesus Christ must take root in our hearts and produce fruit in our minds and in our lives. Jesus came to put a face on God. We are here to put a face on Jesus. Our original mandate was to subdue the earth. What if the earth was withholding its fullness from us because of the sin that lies locked in it, the blood that has been shed upon it? What if it's time for us as his people to begin releasing blessing into every area of our lives simply by speaking it out wherever we go? What if overcoming evil with good is as simple as that? Any doubt in his absolute lordship and sovereignty over all things will lead to weakness in that area. So not only do we need to know who we are, but much more importantly, who he is. So I've entitled this first part of the study, Presentation of the King, as I present him to you as the sovereign ruler of the universe, our saviour, shepherd, bridegroom, coming king. Ephesians three fourteen to 19 in the New American Standard Bible. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he will grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Paul here is praying that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, be at home, put his feet up. This means we have to get rid of the rubbish so he can dwell there. He can't live with our old junk. The health of the tree depends on the roots and we need to be deep in the love of God, grounded with our foundations firm in that love in order that we may comprehend, understand, grasp and realise the depth of the love of Christ. We aren't into candy floss, no tickling of the palate and getting you to only take sweet stuff. 
you need your sprouts as well. Good Bible teaching presents things in solid form, a meal, not a snack. So it may take you a little while to unpick this and get a revelation for yourself of what Jesus' kingdom and particularly his kingship is all about. We're going to study the principle of kingship. And as I said before, if the Lord will, we'll go on to examine the life of Jesus, our man, our man in glory. Jesus, we will see, was the only one fit to be king and the only one who is king of kings. We will understand who the wise men were. We will see all the kingly titles of Jesus, his enthronement in the heavenlies and the phases whereby his kingship will be revealed for every eye to see and why every knee will have to bow to him because God has highly exalted him. Philippians 2, 8-11, New American Standard Bible. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God has highly exalted him. First then we must talk about God the Father for it is he who has highly exalted the Son. It is he who has ordained that Jesus Christ shall be King. We must understand therefore what God has purposed in the kingship of Jesus. Right through the Old and New Testaments the theme is consistent. Our God reigns. He has reigned. He does reign. And he will reign. He is king. Our God is king. He isn't a king. He is king. His kingship isn't coming. It has always been. From the first day when he said, let there be light, he has reigned. He's reigning now and will be forevermore. Amen. This fact needs to grip us and form our thinking. Our mindset has really got to be, I don't care what I see or what's happening around me. My God is good and he is on the throne. My God reigns, my King reigns. If we don't have this revelation, we will walk all the time in fear and dread and will doubt that he's in control and will actually depose him from his position as King. He is king and he is reigning and he is in control of all things no matter what it looks like. Psalm 47 7 in the NIV For God is the king of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. Psalm 24 1 NIV The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it despite what anyone may say. 
Once we have a heavenly viewpoint, it's obvious that God reigns. Once we are living there, it's clear. The problem is that very often our thinking is earthly and we find it very difficult to see things from a heavenly perspective. God wants us to not only recognize where he has seated us, but he wants us to live from there, seeing things from his perspective. Whilst uh, 1 John 5.17 is true, we know that we are the children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one, Satan does have power, but it is limited and it is tem temporary and it's like King Herod in the days of Jesus' birth. That power is usurped. So his power has a time limit on it and that time limit has been put there by God. That, beloved, is the sovereignty of God. The early church had one great secret. They knew this. They had a madman on the throne, but they knew God was in charge. And because they knew he was in charge and their future was secure, they were able to endure terrible persecution without losing heart. They knew there was no power except it was given of God. And because of this, they were in subjection to the government, even with a madman apparently in control. So Paul can write in Romans 13.1, Every person is to be subject, in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Paul made it perfectly clear to the early Christians, and some of us today could do with understanding this, that there is no power except it is given by God himself. And if he gives it, he has a purpose. Romans 13 is not testing the authorities. It's testing us and our obedience. God has placed authorities over us. We are meant to obey them before God. It says, doesn't it, that they don't hold the sword in vain. In other words, they are given power by God himself. So obedience to the authorities in the land is an absolute priority for a Christian. Sovereignty. Our part is to obey those that God puts in authority over us without grumbling and complaining. The early martyrs had a revelation of who was in control. They rejoiced, all hail the power of Jesus' name. They had a revelation that the Romans could not do anything unless God allowed them. The Romans couldn't understand it. They could not break these people no matter what they did. They had a good confession. You can only be like that, you know, if you know God's in charge. And he does want us all to live a victorious life like this. But you can only do it if you have a revelation of his lordship, his kingship and his sovereignty. If God wants to get rid of a leader, he can do it without lifting a finger. He could have delivered Jesus from the cross. If he wants to remove leaders, they'll just have a heart attack and fall down dead. That's that. 
President Nasser of Egypt, some of you may remember, is perhaps a recent example in my lifetime. He died of a heart attack in 1970, immediately following a meeting to join the Egyptian forces with those of Jordan. I remember seeing the footage of him getting out of the plane and walking across the tarmac on his return, and within hours he'd gone. It's just conjecture. His death was sudden and dramatic. Did God remove him from the political scene because he was trying to bring in something too soon, joining Egypt with Jordan and Israel in the middle, and God had to remove him? Just a thought. Daniel 2.21 in the NIV tells us that he raises up kings and removes kings. He changes times and seasons, he sets up kings and deposes them. Our God reigns. That's actually a brilliant study to look at the times when he raised up kings for his purpose. Pharaoh comes into my mind for that. And then when he's finished with them, he destroys them. When they fulfilled their purpose, that's it. Because he knows what's in their evil heart. It really is... is it, a brilliant way to discover the sovereignty of God, the majesty of God and the justice of God, the righteousness of God. You see them all in his dealings with these people. Our God reigns. So the early Christians had a good confession. Jesus had a good confession too in John 19. At this point the Jews have delivered him to Pontius Pilate and there's a dialogue going on between Pilate and the Sanhedrin. We pick it up in John 19, 7-11 in the New American Standard. The Jews speaking now to Pilate. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greatest sin. He's in front of Pontius Pilate, and Pilate is in fear. Don't you know who I am? I have the power. Jesus says, uh-uh, no, you could have no power at all except it was given you. And then he goes on to say, he who delivered me referring to Caiaphas the high priest that year, a wicked man who was head of the Jewish mafia of the day. He's the real villain, Jesus is saying. You're only doing your job, Pilate. Pilate was not Jesus' enemy. He had more deadly enemies than the Romans. And to see this we need to go to John 11, 47-54 in the NIV. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. 
If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation also, but for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. In verse 48, the priests are showing that they fear for their own safety and position if Jesus is allowed to carry on. They were fearful of losing both their position in the synagogue and their position before the peoples if Jesus' behaviour caused rioting to break out. Caiaphas, the chief priest that year, intervenes and prophesies. God can use an unbeliever to prophesy that this man will save the nation of Israel. Caiaphas was a very wicked man and godfather of the day. He was married to Ananias' daughter and was both a gangster and a murderer. It was these members of the Sanhedrin who pursued Jesus to the death. But Jesus says to Pilate, you'd have no power over me unless it was given you. That must settle it for us. God is the one who gives power to men and he distributes as he thinks fit. 1 Timothy 6.12 to 15 in the New American Standard and Paul is exhorting Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Jesus Christ, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, and Lord of Lords. In this scripture Paul has just been released from prison where Nero had had him incarcerated and he tells young Timothy to lay hold of the eternal life to which he was called. He reminds him that it's God who gives life to everything and that when he appears he will demonstrate beyond any shadow of doubt that he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Paul knows he hasn't got long and he says that God is happy and content because everything is, is in order. He's got his feet up. He's relaxed and happy, which is the meaning of blessed. So when we bless each other, we're saying be relaxed. God's in control. Be happy. Everything is in order. Be relaxed as he is relaxed. Our God is the only one with any power around here, no matter what any man says.
So Paul, about to be put to death, says, Our God is the only one with power. That's why God can say through Isaiah, Let him be your fear, let him be your dread. In other words, get your fear in the right place. Fear God and you won't fear anything else. Isaiah eight twelve to 14 You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. He shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. But both to the houses of Israel a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Alexander the Great, you know, was killed by a mosquito. A great man, he conquered vast territories. He was only 31 or 32, I believe, but he was killed by something very small. As Graham Cook would say, if you think you're too small to make a difference, you've never been in bed with a mosquito. God is the only potentate. He's never been laid low or attacked by a mosquito. The only way to be in perfect peace is to see that God is in complete control. He is King. As I stated at the beginning of the study, the kingship of Jesus has been ordained by the Father in heaven and our Father reigns. Jesus' kingship is going to be made visible for all to see. God's kingdom has come, is coming and will come. Father has decreed that Jesus Christ will be king over the entire created realm and that he will be the summit of everything he's created. This is the most wonderful thing and all history is moving towards this visible revelation of King Jesus at his glorious coming, his parousia. So now, having started with God the Father, let's move on to the real subject matter, matter which is King Jesus. Ephesians 1, 9-10 in the NRV says this, And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. And here we see the specific intention of God, his ultimate will. In his keros time, at the right exact time, he will bring all things together under one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. For those of you who don't know the difference between Keros and Kronos, Kronos time is our time. God gave us time so that we could boil a three minute egg and catch a train at 8.14 or whatever time it goes. But Keros time is God's time. And it's the exact time when God chooses to intervene in human affairs. He did it with the birth of Jesus. Exactly the time. Everything was in place for Jesus to arrive. It's not a study for now, but Koine Greek was there 
to get the gospel out quickly. Everything was just absolutely perfect timing. God is never early, but he's never late. He's always exactly on time, his keros moment. So, he will bring things all together under one head. In the King James Version it says it like this, Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he has purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. To bring a little more understanding, the word dispensation used here is the word in Greek oikonomos, O-I-K-O-N-O-M-O-S, which is where we get our word economy. And it means a chamberlain, a governor, a housekeeper. In other words, God is a housekeeper, a householder, and the whole universe is his house. So when he's ready, he will put who he decrees in charge of his whole estate. Isn't that lovely? When Father is good and ready, Jesus will return, and that will be that. His regal majesty, King Jesus, reigns. When he was born, he came as the king, and everything in his life from the moment of his birth testified to his kingship. Going back now to his birth, and we look at Luke, chapter 1, 30 and 32, New American Standard. The angel said to her, speaking to Mary now, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will be called the Son of the Most High. This is a proclamation of kingship. This is a declaration of his authority. The next thing we see is angelic choirs singing. Luke 2:14, King James Version. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. God is speaking peace to men, goodwill towards them in his Son. Question is, will men receive him? The next thing we see is Mary coming to the temple with Joseph to offer according to the rite of purification as was common in those days. Luke 2, 22-24 and when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. It's obvious at this point from Mary's offering that the Magi have not yet visited. 
If they had, she would have had money for a more expensive offering. A pair of turtle doves was what the poor offered. And then we see Jesus being dedicated and Simeon says in Luke 2.34 NASB And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. This tiny babe is destined for the rise and fall of many in Israel. This is no ordinary baby. By the time the Magi discover him, he is described as the child. Matthew 2, 11-15, New American Standard. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. The Flight to Egypt Verse 13 Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Here we see God's provision for the family. They're fleeing to Egypt and money has been provided now for their journey and their stay. So Jesus is king and he's come to reign. The shepherds see the angel, the, they, the shepherds see the angels and the babe in the stable. The angels pay homage, the shepherds pay homage and then the high-ranking Gentiles pay homage to this king. They bring gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. What do they signify? Gold was always presented to a king. Frankincense had to do with God, worship and homage. And myrrh was man's best friend. The aftershave of the ancient world. It made you smell nice. It was both an anaesthetic and it was used for embalming. So the gifts indicated who Jesus was. He was king, he was God, and he was man. He is king, he is God, and he is a man. Jesus, king, man, and lamb of God, who will be sacrificed for the salvation of many. Everything about Jesus' birth proclaimed him as king, and already he was recognized by angels and by men. He was born to be king and recognized.